Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. And the word was made flesh. And dwelt among us. Hail Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Pray for us, O Holy Mother of God, that we may be made worthy of the promises of Christ. Let us pray. Pour forth, we beseech you, O Lord, your grace into our hearts, that we, to whom the incarnation of Christ your Son was made known by the message of an angel, may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. We're back with all new episodes, and this week, Bishop discusses a recent survey that revealed some shocking statistics about how many Catholics believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Then it's on to the upcoming Bilingual Confirmation Mass for Youth with Disabilities, a conversation about relics, and then listeners submitted questions on topics including Marian apparitions and much more. If you have a question for Bishop, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our Bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your busy schedule. A lot going on right now. Oh, you're welcome, Kyle. Great to be here. And we've got uh, listeners from all over, I know. We've got uh, not just in this diocese, but beyond, and... Yeah, yeah you know, particular. I want to send a special shout out to um, one of our parishes um, because I was recently there for a confirmation and then their parish picnic, St. Michael Waterloo. And uh, several people w- who came up said, oh, I love listening to uh, Truth and Charity on uh Redeemer Radio. So uh-huh. I was like, oh, that's great. You know, one of these more rural parishes. So I thought a uh, special shout out today to uh, parishioners from St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Waterloo. Yeah. Thanks, thanks for, listening. for listening. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing that's happened, it's been out for a little while, but we haven't had a chance to talk about it yet on this show, was the uh, Pew Research Survey talking about U.S. Catholics and their beliefs when it comes to the Eucharist, particularly that only a third said that they believe that during Mass, the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus. About 70% then of Catholics think it's just a symbol of the body and blood of Jesus, which has raised concerns amongst priests and bishops how this is 
gotten to this point, um, maybe not a particularly a surprise when we look at kind of the trends of, of people in the church, but what are some thoughts on, on this survey and what we should be doing as a church? You know, it's a very, the, the results are, are very disturbing because the Eucharist is at the very center of our lives as Catholics. I honestly um, haven't read the, um, the methodology that was used in the survey. I would like to study that a, a, a little bit more uh, mm-hmm. regarding its accuracy. However, it is, uh, does seem that the, uh, you know, it's a reputable, obviously, Pew Research Center is a reputable organization. Um, of course, when they give those statistics, it's talking about all Catholics. So that includes the many who don't practice their faith. Mm-hmm. And I could see if someone doesn't believe that the Eucharist is the real presence of Christ, it kind of makes sense why they don't go to Mass. But, um, however, you know, it also reveals that even people who who do attend Mass regularly, there's a significant number who don't believe in the real presence. Uh, Not the majority, but still a significant number. The more people attend Mass, if they attend weekly or more, the faith is much stronger. If they seldom mm-hmm. or never uh, attend Mass, the, 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 you know, their faith in the Eucharist is, is weaker. I also um, was interested that they found out that a number of people don't even know the Church's teaching on the real presence, you know, on transubstantiation, right. that the bread and wine is is transformed or changed into the substance of the body and blood of Christ. So that becomes a catechetical issue. You know, it, it looked like about uh, maybe a, a quarter of the people surveyed didn't really know what the church taught. Now, that's kind of hard for me to believe because at least in our diocese, we have very strong catechesis mm-hmm. and no one, I don't think, can go through our Catholic schools or our religious education programs and not know what the church teaches right. about transubstantiation. But the other thing is, you know, what can we do about it? Um, if so many people believe the bread and wine are merely symbols, you know, why? Perhaps our catechesis needs to be stronger. There's so much in scripture and tradition about the real presence. That's really important. But then I wonder also about our liturgical practice. You know, if reverence isn't being shown to the blessed sacrament, then it can lessen people's faith or or have people think that this is just ordinary bread and wine. It's It's not special. It's not the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. I think it does say it's important that we treat the Eucharist always with the sacredness that it deserves, with reverence. I notice sometimes, and some of the priests and I talked about this, the way people come up and receive communion sometimes can be very casual, Mm -hmm. you know, like... um, or, the, you know, you could have a priest who's too casual in the way he celebrates Mass. We shouldn't be casual about something that's so sacred. We should have profound reverence. I mentioned people going up to communion. Like if I, Sometimes I've seen people come up and it's, you know, they're, they're shaking hands with people on the way up or, or joking or something like that. I'm thinking, they're coming to receive the body and blood of the Lord. 
Mm-hmm. How can they be like talking to somebody in their pew or patting somebody on the back and say, oh, how are you? I mean, no, you're coming to receive the Lord of the universe. I mean, that's where the focus should be. So I think the manner in which we receive communion, I think things like genuflections and bows and all of that recognizing through our gestures, all that is is bearing witness. And if it's too casual, people start to think, oh, this is no, you know, this is not the real thing or this is symbolic. So so I think we can look at both of those areas, right. stronger catechesis and also more reverence at the liturgy. Yeah. For somebody listening that is either struggling with this teaching, maybe was unaware that the Catholic Church preached that it was more than just a symbol, that it is the actual body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus present in the form of bread and wine. Or if somebody is having a hard time explaining this to a friend or a family member, could you just give a little uh, a case for the church's teaching on this truth? Yeah, I mean, I I would begin with really the, the scriptures themselves, uh, the accounts of the Last Supper and the gift of the Eucharist, and what Jesus himself said, take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is the cup of my blood. To go even beyond that to other scriptural passages where, for example, John chapter 6, where Jesus insists on the realism of the Eucharist. Anyone who reads John chapter 6 has to realize this is not something symbolic. Jesus says, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Very realistic language. Mm -hmm. And then one can turn to the letters of St. Paul, where he talks about things like the importance of of being in the state of grace and receiving the Eucharist worthily. And then one can look at the fathers of the church. We see in the earliest writings of the church in those first centuries, this emphasis by the fathers that this is something real, that this is not symbolic. You know, I encourage people to study this. There's a lot of good books. There's a book that I used when I taught a course on the Eucharist called The Hidden the Hidden Manna, which mm. is really good. You know, there's a lot of good apologetical works on the Eucharist too, but good theological works. So I really would encourage people who are struggling with their Eucharistic faith to maybe do more reading about it. I also encourage people to spend time in prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, um, whether it's with exposition of the Blessed Sacrament or or just where the Eucharist is there in the tabernacle to just spend some time in the presence of the Lord. That also deepens Eucharistic faith. Should we not go up to communion if we believe that it's only a symbol? Right. I, I, I think one should only approach the Holy Eucharist with faith in, in the truth about the Eucharist. Um, now, I think there's a difference between someone who's maybe struggling to believe sure. uh, and one who actually denies, you know, one who denies that Christ is truly present mm-hmm. should not receive. Okay. All right. Well, coming up, we'll talk about a bilingual confirmation for youth with disabilities, relics, 
and your questions right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and coming up this Saturday, there's a special confirmation mass, and it is particularly for youth with disabilities. Is this something that's been offered in this form in the past? No, um, I have confirmed uh, many young people with disabilities as part of regular confirmation groups. Sure. And I've also done a few individual confirmations in special circumstances of, of children or young people with disabilities. But the idea here, our diocesan disabilities uh, ministry and um, our efforts to build inclusive parishes mm-hmm. uh, and the people involved in on the the, t- the committee or task force uh, asked me to celebrate a liturgy where I would confirm youth with disabilities for this reason. Sometimes it's difficult, depending on the disability, but I think of autism as an example, where there's noise or or a lot of people, a lot of music or loud music, whatever, mm-hmm. that make it very, very difficult, for example, for a child with autism to Mm -hmm. attend. So they asked if we could have a special mass that would be very quiet, that would um, be rather simple, so that it would be easier for young people to attend. And we decided to have it bilingual because of uh, we have both English and Spanish-speaking families who uh, have children with disabilities and have asked for this. So it will be a bilingual mass at Our Lady of Guadalupe on Saturday at 4 p.m. So I really am excited about this. I mean, I'm very happy about the outreach that has happened through our diocesan ministry for persons with disabilities. And, And we have many parishes now that are much more, I would say, not only aware, but much more uh, solicitous for the needs of of families that have uh, members who have disabilities, that not only that our churches or our schools be handicapped accessible and you know have the physical accommodations that are needed, but other accommodations depending on what the disability might be. Mm-hmm. We want our parishes to be inclusive. So therefore, if there are deaf parishioners. There should be sign language or there can be, if people are hard of hearing, you have those hearing devices. Mm-hmm. So whatever the disability be, might be, physical or mental, uh, we need, for example, in our catechetical programs to have programs for uh, teaching uh, young people with maybe some intellectual or cognitive disabilities. Mm-hmm. So we have more of our Catholic schools now providing more special needs education. So it's really been a growing thing in our diet that I am really happy about. It is so important that we ensure the participation of all and 
including so many of our brothers and sisters with disabilities. Sure. If somebody has a need that they don't feel is being provided by a parish, what would be the proper way to address this and to, to look for resources? Well, I think, first of all, to approach the pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and if the parish is having difficulty, then they could approach the diocese for help. Okay. We have an office um, in the diocese. Um, Allison Sturm is our person who has the responsibility for this area of ministry. Uh, so the diocese can always be contacted because there might be something where we might have the resources to help, whereas a parish may not have sure. the resources. Or we can also help the parish to provide what's needed. I'd say the same thing with our schools. And this definitely has been a topic uh, for the last few years in uh, on the agenda for a lot of our schools. And, you know, it gives me a lot of joy when I visit schools now and I see more special needs students Mm -hmm. because it always was sad for me you know you have a family that sends its children to catholic school but then maybe they have a child with a disability who who can't go so when we can fill that that need it's it's just great yeah yeah and so i imagine it's too late to get involved if you had a need like this for the confirmation mass that is this saturday i'm sure you already had to be enrolled and, and set up for that but if is this going to be an annual event do you see or well we were thinking maybe every other year okay uh it'll depend on the need um for those who would want it i mean others may prefer that their child with disabilities be at the regular confirmation mass in their parish and oftentimes that's no problem Mm -hmm. i think it is does become more of a problem if the disability is such that it's very uncomfortable or very difficult for someone to be in a large group setting sure. with music and and uh, all the activity that is at a regular mass. So, so I want to be sensitive to whatever works best for the particular family. All right. Again, this will be Saturday, September 7th, 4 p.m. at Our Lady of Guadalupe Parish in Warsaw. And... Speaking of confirmation, and we always think of confirmation saints that you might choose as a patron for you. We've had a lot of big saints in August with St. Maximilian Kolbe, St. Rose of Lima, St. Pius X, St. John the Baptist. And thought this might be a, a chance for us to kind of segue and talk about relics, which yeah. <laughs> I, I think this is, might be a, something that a lot of non-Catholics for sure struggle with, but even some Catholics might have difficulty either accepting this idea of giving reverence to a relic or being able to explain it to friends. Um, So maybe before we get into why we have relics, could you explain what a relic is? Yeah. um, Relic is a relic is a, uh, there are different kinds of relics. It could be a piece of the body, of a saint, for example, a a piece of the, one of their bones or a piece of one of their bones. You know, there's relics of Pope John Paul II that are vials of his blood. Mm-hmm. I don't think there are any relics of his bones, but but mm-hmm. his blood. So, if it's a piece of the body, that's what's called a first class relic. There are three classes of sacred relics. The first is a part of the body. The second class relic is a piece of the saint's clothing or something that was used by the saint. 
one of the saint's belongings, you know, that, mm -hmm. uh, and the third class relic is an object that's been touched to a first class relic. Okay. So it really wasn't something that belonged to the saint, but let's say you had, um, a cloth or something that you touched a, a first class relic with, and that becomes a third class relic. We have this this custom in the church of of the veneration of relics, um, and it really I think is important to to. I mean, and this has a long history in mm -hmm. the church. I mean, this goes back to the early church. Actually, even see in the Old Testament the right. veneration of relics. You have, for example. When the Israelites departed from Egypt at the Exodus, they took the bones of Joseph with them. You know, they were relics. Uh -huh. Or, you know, you have the bones of Elisha. Uh, you read about in the second book of Kings that came in contact with a dead person who was then raised to life. So you have examples of that in the Old Testament. But then even in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 19, remember the Christians at Ephesus? They had handkerchiefs and cloths that they touched to St. Paul's skin, hmm. and that affected the healing of the sick. And then in the early church, um, for example, the veneration of the, of the relics of martyrs. If you remember St. Polycarp, he was a bishop and martyr in the mid-2nd century, and how the faithful wanted to to touch his body even before he he was he was martyred they felt you know his holiness we see the reverence paid to to relics as early also as the fourth and fifth centuries and then so this is something that's not new um it really has pretty ancient roots and i think it's important to kind of see this in the context of our catholic faith because we do believe in eternal life. We believe that those who, who are in, uh, with God in heaven, they are the saints. But we also believe in the resurrection of the body, mm -hmm. you know, which is really important on the last day. And we believe in the sacredness of the human body and the respect that we should show to bodies of both the living and the dead. And we believe in the intercessory power of the prayers of the saints. When you have relics of the saints and venerate those relics, you're kind of reminded of these various truths. We think of these heroic Christians. And um, so I think that might be somewhat helpful. Um, might give some examples of what happened throughout history. They, they would often deposit relics in altars. Like if an altar was being dedicated it would con it would often contain relics, and mm -hmm. that continues up until now. Is that mandatory in an altar? It's not mandatory. Okay. No, no. Oftentimes, people would want to be buried near the tombs of of the saints or sure. martyrs. Up until recent decades, regarding altars, um, there would be an altar stone on the mensa on the table of the altar, in which would be deposited a first class relic. And that's what the priest would kiss when he kisses the altar. Oh, okay. um, that's uh, no longer required, but it is. Uh, we do have those altar stones in a lot of our older churches mm -hmm. in, in the altars. Now, the preference of the church is that if you're praising the relics of saints uh, with the dedication of a new altar, that the relics be placed under the altar and that they be a larger part of the body, not just a real tiny 
piece of, of a bone, but actually something that you could actually recognize. I was thinking too, you know, in, in St. Peter's Basilica, we have like the body of St. John Paul II was, was taken from the crypt and placed under an altar on, in the upper church, huh. just like St. John the 23rd's is. So we have an altar above the whole body mm-hmm. of John Paul II, an altar over the whole body of, of John the 23rd. Is it visible? It's visible, yeah. But not, right. I'm sorry, no, no, John Paul's, um, I can't remember. But I know Pope John the Twenty Third. There's like a mask over his head, but you can see his vestments. And uh-huh. His bones are underneath the vestments. Right. I think John Paul's is not like that. I think it's still in a casket. You know, there's certain things you have to be prudent about. All of this. You know, there's a lot of relics out there that are doubtful. Okay. Um, so, you know, we don't want to expose for veneration relics that may not be authentic, uh-huh. you know, so that you have to be careful about. So you should have the proper documentation from the Vatican that these are authentic. Also, there is, it's totally forbidden to traffic in relics to, to sell them. Okay. Um, and you have to avoid superstition, mm-hmm. like using this like magic. No, we don't believe in magic. <laughs> right. Um, so, I think those are certain things, you know, cautionary things about uh, relics. Um, so, um, a reliquary is is a container where we put a relic, and um, you know, some of our parishes have relics in reliquaries for people to venerate. I remember, as an example, Saint Therese Little Flower Parish in South Bend. I was able to obtain for them. Uh, well, I gave them a relic that I had of St. Therese, and they have it in a reliquary, and people can pray there. And I also wrote to the Vatican and, and was able to get first-class relics of St. Therese's parents, who are both saints. And they're also displayed for veneration at St. Therese Little Flower Parish in South Bend. You know, the Vatican isn't giving, uh, doesn't give relics for, like, just private purposes. It would have to be request of a bishop for public uh, veneration. So for churches, basically. Some people still have relics, perhaps individuals have them in their homes. Um, But now the church is being more careful as far as restricting the uh, granting of relics to to those who are, you know, uh, entrusted with public veneration. Okay. And you mentioned reliquaries. Is there a particular... I don't know, rule of what a reliquary would look like or be made of or any of that? No, I mean, it it should be something of dignified quality because if it's going to house, so to speak, a, you know, the holy relic of a saint, it's usually something of good quality metal or, or, um, or wood. So, uh, but I don't know of any, any norms on that. Okay. All right, well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And coming up, we have some questions about Marian apparitions, who can be possessed by demons, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking the questions that you have submitted. A listener asked, as Catholics, we are not required to believe in Marian apparitions. However, in apparitions such as Fatima, she not only requires us to believe, but also take action. How can the church not require something that Mary clearly requires? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's important to start with the fact that as Catholics, and the the questioner alludes to this, the church teaches that all public revelation ended with the death of the last apostle, with the death of St. John. Hmm. Um, Now, the Holy Spirit continues to guide the church, but there's no more public revelation. And therefore, as Catholics, we are only required to believe what's in the deposit of faith, okay? What has, what is public revelation, you know? So when we talk about private revelations, and, and this includes Marian apparitions, some have been approved as worthy of our belief. For example, Fatima or Lourdes or Guadalupe. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, and even though the church approves of these apparitions, and basically the church says, uh, has examined them and, and says they are worthy of belief, it doesn't mean that we have to believe them, mm-hmm. okay? The church is basically saying there's nothing contradictory to the faith in the messages that emerge from the apparitions. They're saying the visions are credible and that For example, the Blessed Virgin Mary can be honored or venerated under the title of Our Lady of Fatima or Our Lady of Lourdes or Our Lady of Guadalupe, but we're not required to believe them. I, you know, I I believe, you know, I have a special devotion to Our Lady of Guadalupe and I have a special devotion to Our Lady of Lourdes, and these are private revelations, Um, but they don't reveal new things. I mean, what we're required to believe is the apostolic deposit of faith. And private revelation can help us to do that, but it doesn't add to the public or universal revelation. The deposit of faith was entrusted to the apostles by Jesus, it's handed down in the form of sacred scripture and tradition, and this kind of revelation ended with the death of the last apostle. And this is what is protected by the charism of infallibility. Hmm. Um, And that's what has to be believed by all the faithful. But there's been no new public revelation. Okay. So we're in the realm of private revelations. And as I said, some have been recognized by the authority of the church, but they don't belong to the deposit of faith. So we have to be careful. The church is very careful in discerning reports of apparitions, for example. If you know, it's anything is contrary to the public revelation, then we know it's not authentic. Um, When it comes to private revelations, one has to be careful because when the church approves a revelation, it doesn't mean that everything about it is, is something that, that is part of what the church approves. Um, Hmm. In other words, if there would be anything contrary to faith, it wouldn't be there. It wouldn't have been approved. Remember, private revelation comes also through the prism of a human being who can get things wrong, who can make mistakes. We see, for example, 
uh, various saints who, you know, private revelations the church has approved of, but there may be parts that are questionable, you know? So I think, yeah, one has to be a little bit careful and be able to try to see that sometimes personal elements can enter in because no private revelation comes directly from God. Uh, so we can't assume that they are without any errors, mm-hmm. you know? So, and I think when one talks about the apparitions of Our Lady and different messages from Our Lady, they are, you know, worthy of belief. They can be piously believed, but we do not have to believe them. Okay. So if I could just maybe take an example, if Mary says that we should pray the rosary daily, we could see that as a good suggestion and this is something that can help us, but it's not mandatory. Right, right. That's how I would see it. Yeah. You know, I think one has to be a little bit careful of becoming so wrapped up with a private revelation that it becomes like central in one's life and spirituality Hmm. because that's not our lady's wish i mean she wants our life and our prayer and our to be centered in in her son i mean she always points her son her messages are all about you know prayer penance those are all right there in the gospel i think if mary uh, the report is Mary encourages daily prayer of the rosary. I think that's definitely consistent with the gospel. Uh, I would believe something like that, but but I would never, I would not see it as a command. Mary's not going to command something that isn't commanded by her son or commanded in the gospel. Okay. All right. Someone asked, does the Catholic Church teach or believe that a baptized practicing Catholic living a sacramental life in the state of grace can be possessed by demons or the devil? Wow. You should ask an exorcist that question. (laughs) Um, I'll just say what I think. Uh, I think it would be extremely rare that a baptized practicing Catholic living a sacramental life in the state of grace would be possessed by okay. the, by a demon or the devil. I don't think it's impossible, though. Mm-hmm. Um, let me give you an example. You may have heard of a recently canonized saint, and she was a Palestinian, um, canonized a few years ago by Pope Francis. She had been beatified by Pope John Paul II back in 1983, the year I was ordained a priest, and her name is St. Miriam of Jesus Crucified. Huh. Maybe Miriam, working here at Redeemer Radio, knows about St. Miriam. Same name. This is a fascinating story. Um, this woman, who was born in a place not far from Nazareth, actually, in the Holy Land, eventually became a Carmelite nun. Uh, she has a very interesting life, and there's, you know, we don't have a t- time today to to go through it, but but uh, she entered a Carmel, uh, one of the... Uh, the Carmelites at a, a convent in Pau, which is in France, I believe. And um, she took the name St. Sister Mary or Sister Miriam of Jesus Crucified. But she was a mystic. She had a lot of ecstasies in prayer. She was really, it's really remarkable to read about her life. She's one who received the stigmata. Hmm. But reading about her holiness and all these beautiful uh, mystical experiences that she had 
we also read that she experienced demonic possession. Hmm. So, and I don't know how long, I think it was maybe for a couple weeks, but all that's been testified to. And so that's kind of an example of someone who was living in the state of grace. But as I said, I think it would be extremely rare. Everything I've read about exorcisms, especially by, you know, well-known and respected exorcists, is that um, the best way to avoid any kind of demonic possession or even obsession would be living a a good sacramental life, making Mm -hmm. sure one lives in the state of grace. It would be very, very unlikely. As you may know, most of the experiences that I've heard of, of of real demonic possession, there's been some openness on Mm -hmm. the part of the person to the entrance of a demon into their life. For example, um, someone that's been involved in satanic worship or in occult kinds of practices, often that might be the the cause. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone who's habitually in a state of of sin, Mm -hmm. who's... um, or involved in things like sorcery or whatever, someone living in mortal sin, um, those are usually the when one opens the door to something like this. Sure. Uh, you probably saw the movie The Exorcist years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, the true story behind that, it was a little boy who, before he was possessed, what was he doing? He was participating in seances mm. uh, that his aunt was conducting, and he was using the Ouija board and things like that. So yeah. sometimes when you read about cases, authentic cases of of possession, Usually there's something that allows the devil to enter into a person. You know, some say he can't enter us if we don't open the door. But I think about this saint, you know, and that's why I think there might be exceptions. But one really needs to avoid all of those things that could open the door. You know, I mentioned, you know, the importance of being in the state of grace, but, but also avoiding any kind of spiritism or things that are violations, especially of the first commandment. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you have any other questions, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Call or text us on the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have questions asking if the dead can still interact with us. Bishop's first car and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman asking questions that you have submitted for Bishop to answer. And Caitlin Wright from Saints Peter and Paul in Huntington wrote... My grandmother recently passed away, and my grandfather says he feels her presence. As Catholics, do we believe that those who die are still able to interact with us or be present to us in any way? Thank you for taking the time to answer my question. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, first of all, the church doesn't have any doctrine that specifically deals with ghosts. Okay. And that's what this question is about, uh, interactions with those who've died. 
their souls, and that's a ghost. So, so I think it's important before I get into this is that we don't have any spe- specific doctrine on this. Now, there is the story of King Saul. You may remember in uh, in the Old Testament in the first book of Samuel, where he asks a witch, the witch of Endor, to call up the spirit of the prophet Samuel. Um, so, you know, there was obviously uh, something about a ghost. Does God allow a soul to manifest itself from beyond death? You know, I think so. Uh, again, this isn't official church uh-huh. teaching, but there have been so many reports of this. Yeah. And sometimes the soul can be from heaven or from hell mm. or from purgatory. I think probably more often from purgatory, but it would be absolutely wrong and dangerous and against church teaching to try to conjure up the spirits of the dead. Mm-hmm. That is wrong. That can really open one up to the demonic. So we have that ghost story from the story of King Saul. But even when you think about the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses and Elijah appeared. Right. You know, it was their souls. So they were ghosts, really. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, there's a lot of this stuff about paranormal activity and ghosts. One has to be really, really cautious about it because some of it can just be hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think maybe it happens. You know, I, I think there have been reports um, of perhaps some spirits, uh, some souls from purgatory who, 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 who need prayers. There might be a soul of someone in heaven bringing a message of hope and love, or you know, you have to be careful about the malicious spirits—the you know, those that come from hell. That's the way I I think about it. Um, again, I've I've heard and read so many things that don't seem to have a natural explanation, but then there are also things that are fake and hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that answers the question. It's an interesting question. Uh, I think we did talk about ghosts here one yeah. one other time, but I mean the fact is we do believe that in the existence of souls mm-hmm. that survive the body after death, and the question really is, uh, you know, can, do they ever return? The Bible's very clear against us trying to call up spirits of the dead or speaking to the dead. That is strictly forbidden. When you say speaking to the dead, we could ask them for their prayers. Right. right. What I mean is speaking in the sense of, uh, yeah, I, I, I should be clearer on that. I mean calling them up okay. to speak to them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in, the, in the sense of wanting them to appear to us or something sure. like that. Yeah. I suppose in the case of, feeling the presence of a loved one that's passed away, perhaps that could also just be God giving us that sensation as a gift. Right. Right. To uh, help comfort us. Exactly. And it might not be an interaction particularly with some, there's a, no, like, I agree. All kinds of different yeah, ways. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, next up, if communion is supposed to be carried in a container that is just precious metals, why does the picks have a plastic insert? We've talked about a pix in the yeah, past, and you yeah. mentioned I I have not um, used a pix that has a plastic insert. I, okay. I don't think it's a appropriate, to be honest. Okay. I mean, I'd have to because my my understanding is that any container where we have the blessed sacrament, like a ciborium uh-huh. in the tabernacle or 
if we're talking about a chalice, but a ciborium needs to be out of, of uh, metal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think putting plastic in is not a good idea. You know, sacred vessels are to be made from precious metal, as uh-huh. you said. It doesn't always have to be gold. There can be other kinds of metal or even hardwoods that are suitable for sacred use. You know, so whether we're talking about a paten or ciborium, monstrance, a pix, I've never seen any allowance for the use of, of plastic. Okay. Finally, someone asked, what was your first car? <laughs> a Honda Civic. Okay. I was, I was, it was right after I was ordained a priest. I never had a car until I was 25, uh-huh. and I was ordained. And it was a used car. It doesn't look like the Honda Civic. doesn't look like what Honda Civics <laughs> look like today, by the way. <laughs> Do you remember the year? I, well, I was ordained in 83, so I was probably in the 70s. Okay. Which may have been, they might have been kind of new back then. I don't uh-huh. remember. But I know it was... It was used because I wouldn't. I wasn't able to afford a new car. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Bishop, for taking your time out of your schedule for us. Could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? Sure. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.